0: Galatians 5, verse 26 to chapter 6, verse 5. Hear God's holy, inerrant word. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. As the grass withers and the flower fades, God's inerrant word it endures forever. May He bring His blessing to it. Well, always, and I said you'd have—I said at the beginning of this—you'd have to get used to hearing uh, the purpose of Galatians and the doctrine of justification and understanding what it is. And as many times as I've repeated uh, this uh, definition of what it means to be justified. I can almost guarantee that at least half of us still struggle to understand such a theological and biblical word. It's used in scripture quite a bit. But this is the purpose for which Galatians has been written. It is the purpose written to the church that we might lay hold of this, that we might get the gospel right, and that we might guard the doctrines of the gospel. And the the key doctrine of the gospel is this very doctrine of justification. It basically is summarized as this. How can a wretched sinner be accepted by a holy God? How can I be made right to be able to stand in God's uh, presence and be forgiven all my sins? And And this is where the doctrine of justification comes in to say that the only... The only way, not of works, lest we would boast and say, see how good I am, God loves me. Or, as our Armenian friends would like to say, just God knew who would believe in him. He could look through the course of the history of the world, and those are the ones that he chose to give his salvation to. Those are wrong understandings, because they set the emphasis and the work of salvation even in the smallest of fractions, upon what we do. And justification comes in. It's God saying to us, No, you have been saved by grace alone. That's it. Not of works. The reason God is able to pardon all your sins and accept you as righteous is not because of what you have done. It's all in what he has done, in the sending of his Son, in the death of Jesus Christ, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who became a man, and who alone in all of humanity, think about that from the very beginning of Adam, to the end, to that final person who will be born before Jesus Christ comes. Each and every person did not live their life to the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ alone was able to say as he went to the cross, Father, I have glorified you in the earth. None of us could say that of ourselves. That alone belongs to Christ. And it is through that sacrifice of Christ. It is through the righteousness of Christ. That God is able to pardon all our sins. And to accept us as righteous. Because we are not standing in any righteousness of ourselves. We are covered and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That God bestows upon us. Like that prodigal son's father, when his son came back and said, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father comes out and he says, in all of his rags, and all of his poverty, he looks at him and he says, I'm going to make you my son. And I'm going to dress you as if you were my son. And that's what the father did in that prodigal story. And that's what he does to us in Christ. It's all of Christ. And it's a doctrine that we must get right. Now, sadly, because of that, there's many other problems that rise within the church as we're trying to understand, okay, where do do good works come in? Where does our obedience come in? Where does our sanctification come in? And our sanctification comes not as a result of our justification... But in line with our justification, because those whom God has saved, He is at work in them. And He is at work in them to bring about that perfect conformity to that image of Christ, the perfect man. And that's what He's doing. And in light of that, what we need in order to see our lives sanctified is we need God's law. We need God's word. We need to know how we are to live for God's glory. We need to know what sin is. Let me say this. We are rarely a good judge of what sin is in all its fullness. We can spend a whole lot of time and effort justifying our sins. Our sins against one another. How many, and I'm putting this here on purpose because we're going to deal with that, but how many times has a brother or sister come to you and said, Look, what you did uh, offended? And we say, But it wasn't my fault. It was, we start justifying, don't we? It's so easy. And we need. God's law, God's word. We need to know what is right and wrong. We need to know how to walk in the way of truth and life. And, and God gives his law for that purpose. I'm going to do one of those, you've heard it said, but I say to you sayings of Jesus. Because it's before us, even in Paul's letter to the Galatians. How many of you as Christians have heard it said, we are no longer under law, but under grace. It's a Bible verse. Uh, if you were to back up uh, in, in here, in, in Galatians 5 to verse 18, you would see Paul saying something similar. In verse 18, he says, uh, you, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And, and there's a lot of controversy within the church about what it means to no longer be under the law. And some take it to that degree that the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, is not over us anymore. We walk, we live, and we abide by the principle of the law of Christ. And they use chapter 6, verse 2 to enforce that. As if the law of Christ is set against the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the law of Moses, the law of Sinai, the various terms that are given to it. You have heard it said, We are no longer under the law, but under grace. But I say to you, and I'm quoting scripture, Christ did not make void the law of God. He fulfilled it. And he fulfilled it on our behalf. He fulfilled the law of God, the law of righteousness. He fulfilled the righteousness of God in the flesh on our behalf. Because we can't do it. And he became, in fulfilling the law on our behalf, he became the Lord our righteousness. He suffered many things to show forth his perfect obedience in all things. Hebrews 5. Uh, Sorry, Hebrews 7. He did this. Not setting the law of God aside, but accomplishing it in all its fullness. And he did that so that as the Lord our righteousness, the righteousness of God could be imputed to us. It could be given to us, credited to us, because we do not fulfill the righteousness of God. Even as believers, we fall short of that glory. Thank God we're in Christ. (laughs) That's the Christian's joy. It doesn't excuse our sins. We're not doing that. But what we are saying is that as the law would reveal to us our sins, thanks be to God, we are in the one who has fulfilled it so that we can still be called the righteous ones no matter how hard we're struggling to obey and fulfill the law of God. You see, the law of God has not been made void by the grace of Christ. Rather, what we see in Scripture from Jeremiah 33 to Hebrews chapter 8, what we hear is that very law of God, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, have now been written on our hearts and our minds by the Holy Spirit. It's no longer us needing to look at a tablet that's up on a wall that has the Ten Commandments on it and say, "All oh, right, that's what I'm supposed to do. No, we have the Spirit who's written it in our very soul so that we should not forget it. And that law of God is... The law of Christ. That's, that's the important thing here. Because again, and especially today, more than ever, as people wrestle with the Ten Commandments, and as Christians especially, wrestle with that Fourth Commandment and want to say, look, that Fourth Commandment really doesn't sh- overshadow us anymore because we're living in the eternal rest that Christ has already won for us. And we go through all of these motions to dismiss not to utilize the intent of that fourth commandment, but to dismiss it, saying that if there's something else that I need to do, it's all right because I can worship God in any way and anywhere, and etc., etc., etc. And they use this verse, verse 2, fulfill the law of Christ as justification to that because they bring a very sharp distinction between the Old Testament and New Testament's evaluations of God's moral law. Let me say it unequivocally. God's moral law unconditionally still stands. It is there for us to know. God gave it to those whom he has redeemed. And when he says, you shall have no other gods before it, it still applies, doesn't it? And when he says, you shall not make any graven images and kneel before them in worship, it still applies, doesn't it? When he says, do not take my name in vain, it still applies, doesn't it? And when he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, many stop and say, well, that one doesn't apply. Why? And I'll be blunt. It's because the inclination of our hearts is to have our own days for ourselves. And to do what we want. And what we please to do. Even as Christians. Because the rest of the commandments. We'd always. We'd say the very same thing. We'd say those all still apply. They've all been reiterated in the New Testament. I've even had Christians say to me. That that the fourth commandment. Is the only commandment. That's not reiterated in the New Testament. And I always say. Oh really? Did you read the Gospels? My Congregation has been here for a while, has heard me say this before. The fourth commandment was the one commandment Jesus spent the most time trying to get the people to get right. <laughs> you read the Gospels, that was always the one that was, you're getting it wrong. You're getting it wrong. And then he acclaimed himself Lord of what? The Lord of the Sabbath. So the law is still there, it hasn't been made void by grace. Rather, by grace, it's been made alive in us. And Paul says that. What we are learning as God's people is to live out the law of Christ. Obeying the Ten Commandments is not what makes us justified. It's what reveals us as sinners and what shows us the way of righteousness that is before us. Christ has, in, in this way though, Christ has made God's law new. He even says that. But that's what we need to understand. What is the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is quite simply this. Living as one who is filled by the Spirit, even as Jesus did. That's the law of Christ. Live By the Spirit. And isn't that what Paul has said so often in these brief verses of chapter 5? Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. And so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what it comes to, the law of Christ. And in fact, if you want to understand it more clearly... Most of you know Mark 12, most of you know how the Ten Commandments have been summarized and brought together under the two great commandments. The first commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Well, how do you do that? Well, that's what the first four commandments were all about. Let me love God with all my being. That's the first and greatest. The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you do that? Well, we've got six commandments that teach us how to love my neighbor as myself. We know that summary of the Ten Commandments with those two commandments. It's not that they're extra commandments. It's not that they're void from the law. They're the summation of what the Ten Commandments are teaching us. They're teaching us how to love God and each other. But the law of Christ has come in and done something wonderful. The law of Christ has come in and in particular has made that second table of God's law Loving ourselves new. And how has he done that? John 13. 34-35. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. As I have loved you. That's the law of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have loved for one another. Now, do you see how we made that new? I'm sure many of us, uh, as parents, have taught our children the the world's understanding of what is known as the golden rule. Uh, we're going to compare that to God's royal law, as He calls it. It, it. It's a slight, I think, aberration. The golden rule goes like this: Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, and that can have all sorts of connotations, especially if you get into a fist fight with someone. All right? You, know, you can fight back. Yeah. The royal law, James 2, makes it much more clear in rehearsing what the Old Testament says. That you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we don't do that well, do we? Again, we fall short in that royal law. But what Jesus has come and done in absolute glory and perfection is he comes and he now says, love one another no longer as you would love yourself, but what? Love one another as I have loved you. Here is the new paradigm. It's no longer yourself, it's Christ. (laughs) there's the pattern to which we are to exercise love to one another as the Lord himself has loved us. And in fulfilling that moral law, Jesus set himself as the pattern for us when it comes to the royal law. You see, the moral law hasn't changed Again, it hasn't been made void. The paradigm has been changed and thanks be to God it is because some of us and I I use the word us can really falter in loving other people like we would ourselves. Even within the realms of close bonds of marriage and parent and children relationship I can be selfish. I'm loving you as I would love myself. Well, Self can come first, a whole lot, can't it? So Christ says, in his word, fulfill the law of Christ. And in particular, he's focused on our relationships with one another in the church. And this is where Paul takes us. And, and this isn't the fullness of it, but it is a brief uh, understanding of it. What does it mean to fulfill the law of Christ? And the first thing we see there is esteem one another Verse 26 of chapter 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. What's the opposite of that? Esteem one another. Go down to verse 3 of chapter 6. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. (laughs) You have to learn, really richly learn, to esteem one another. Now, I'm sure this is hard for us to answer on our own. I'm usually much better at defining and and understanding conceit when I look at others rather than looking at myself. But this is the introspection we are given. Are you conceited? That means, are you eager for empty glory? Whatever it may be, you get that new hairdo and, you come to show it to other people. and We receive all those praises. Have you ever noticed that anybody who's ever gotten a bad haircut, which I did this last week, <laughs> nobody ever comes up and says, oh, oh, you got your haircut. <laughs> we change it, don't we? Why would Paul say this? Are you? Don't be conceited. It's because there's many within the church at this time who were. The Judaizers certainly were, the ones he's writing against. they were going around and saying, "Look, look at us. See how righteous and religious we are, and if you're not with us, you're against us." That can happen in our Christian camp, too, can't it? Maybe we're not as obvious or purposeful as we intend to be with conceit, but it happens. And Paul says when it happens, when conceit rises, when we are seeking some sort of glory for ourselves, it becomes provocative, it becomes challenging, it irritates. And we all know what that's like to be beside someone who is conceited. There's an irritation that you can't scratch, and what we generally do is we move away from that person. (laughs) That's that word, provoke. Or envying, trying to create covetous desires in another person's heart, or discontent. And that that's what conceit does. The church at Corinth had this issue. Everyone was desiring the showy gifts. And Paul had to write to them and say, Let me show you the better way. Let me show you. The earnest desire you are to have for the greatest gift. And what is the greatest gift? To love. (laughs) The greatest of these is love. Learn how to love one another. Learn how to fulfill the law of Christ. Don't be conceited. And in that way, you're called, as as he says in verse 3 of chapter 6, you're called to guard against self-deception. And part of that is guarding against how you think about yourself. We can think we are better Christians or we can think as he's listed that list of the works of the flesh. We can look at that and we can say, look, I'm beyond those. We do. We're we're doing this Bible study on the enemy within. And and reading it is very convicting because it, it is showing the darkness that still abides within our hearts, and it's easy to look and say, "Well, I'm not that dark." <laughs> First Corinthians ten, verse twelve: Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he falls. Guard against self-deception, as he's dealing with in here too. Uh, don't ever think you do not need spiritual oversight. A lot of Christians, I don't know how many times I, I've heard this said by Christians, when I ask them, what is your spiritual gift? And, and the two top ones, honestly, the two top ones that I usually get in response are I'm an encourager and I can discern. I can discern. Well, we, we really lack discernment when it comes to our own sins a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are, who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. There's a warning there, isn't there? Self-esteeming is, is prominent and, and we don't often see it because when we are esteeming ourselves, we are deceiving ourselves. That's Paul's point here in verse 3. Let me ask another heart-searching question. How many of you have ever come to your pastor or to an elder or to a close... We might do this with a close friend. We probably would feel more comfortable in asking this question. But how many of you have ever gone to one who is spiritual? And this isn't saying you aren't spiritual, but this this is the reality of these verses. How many of you have ever come to one who is spiritual and say, ask them, Can you tell me what fault you see in my life that I need to put to death? We're not accustomed to thinking that way, are we? Because we think we have it all together. We're dealing with things quite well. We think we know our faults. The truth is, and thank God it's a truth, God knows us better than we know ourselves. (laughs) He's the searcher of our hearts. You hear that prayer of Psalm 139. Search me, O Lord. Try me. See if there is any wickedness within me. And lead me in the path of righteousness. It's what we need. Don't be deceived by self-esteem. Rather, esteem others. And this is, this is where Romans 12 comes in. Paul, Romans is really the expansive guide to the letter to the Galatians. But there Paul also brings that out when he is talking about you living your life by the mercies of God. When you are presenting your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Your reasonable service. What's the, what's the very first thing that he talks about in being transformed in your life? I say through the grace given to me that to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. And that's it. But to think soberly about yourself, that's the law of Christ. Do you know the measure of your faith? Do you think soberly about yourself in in a lowly manner with grace in mind? Who am I before God? Apart from his grace, I'm a wretched sinner. In his grace, I'm a wretched sinner being loved by a holy God. Wow. What has changed is our standing. And that standing effected by God through his Son. As long as we are on this side of glory, there is a lowliness that we exercise. Where we are not self-esteeming, but we are esteeming one another. We are giving honor. Respect, encouragement, exercising gentleness, kindness, and that long-suffering, forbearing to love each other. That's what we are doing. And why? Because Christ has done this to me. I will love you as Christ has loved me. It also means to bear one another's burdens, secondly. You see this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And here Paul has in mind dealing with how do we handle offenses or sin within the church. There's a Matthew 18 principle that does work where we are to go to one another and and we are to speak and address one another on a very small scale, but if repentance isn't forthcoming, then we take it to those next degrees because what we are striving for is not simply to make known sin, but we are striving for that repentance and restoration of one who has sinned. We know that process. I believe Paul has that process in mind when he speaks here about dealing with a man who is overtaken in any sin or trespass. But here he is dealing with how we respond. The way in which we are conducting ourselves in that law of Christ to love this one who is sinning as Christ would love. And it's in gentleness. How gently do you respond to sin in another Christian's life? Boy, parents, how gently do we respond to our children's sin? Sometimes we're pretty good. <laughs> but other times it's, it's, it's hard to be gentle, isn't it? Especially when it's repetitive. Just think about it in the life of the church. What's your first response? How readily do you accept Spiritual guidance of another believer who comes to you because they have seen sin in their life. How spiritual are we in bearing one another's burdens? And here's the law of Christ. I'm not saying this is wrong. Excuse me. But I know in my own dealings as a pastor, when someone comes to me and says, Pastor, i got to tell you what I saw somebody doing. I will often say first and foremost is having told them. Because if it's been revealed to you, you know what? God in that moment accounts you as spiritual enough to go to that person with gentleness to help them. It's the gentleness that we struggle with. But this is, this is bearing one another's burdens. And, and it's not just the burdens of sin. We, we do need to bear the burden of sin that we share as God's covenant people. Because when one person sins in a way uh, that uh, offends God, it's usually offending others or in some way it's having that measure of yeast that wants to begin to spread through the whole lump of God's people. And Paul here, as he addresses the manner and spirit in which we strive to fulfill Matthew 18, it's with that purpose that sin does not get justified in the midst. If you see it, don't think, well, God will take care of it. Don't think, well, I'll hand it over to somebody else so that they can deal with the pressures. You see how easy it is to let sin abide. But realize that you as a spiritual person in gentleness ought to be seeking to restore this one. Thinking of yourself. I could fall into that. Restoring the brother. That's the goal. That's the law of Christ. And it's also bearing with one another's burdens the burdens of life. Some people need more spiritual guidance than others. Some people have physical needs that they struggle to meet. Some people have social needs. You think about after the service and you see someone standing by themselves. And you think, oh, they're over there all by themselves. God, by His Spirit, has just wakened your heart. Go to them. Over and introduce yourself to them. Go over to them. Christ lived out this law with his disciples, spiritually guiding, meeting needs, social needs. He went to the outcasts and sinners to draw them into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> came to us. And he wants us to bear one another's burdens. And the last point there about the law of Christ that's made in Paul's letter here, it's seen in verses 4 and 5, and it, And this is really under that heading of do not condemn one another. Stress this before in other ways. But if they're a brother and a sister in Christ, don't, when you see them falling or failing in sin, don't automatically think, well, they're not a Christian. Our mind goes there. The reality that Paul is getting at here is don't get caught up in examining them or in comparing yourself to them either in a self-deprecating way or in a self-exalting way because each one of you, my dear friends each one of you will stand before God to give an account of yourself you will not stand before God to give witness to somebody else (laughs) the court of law in the throne room of God is one where God is the examiner of each one And knows the fullness of our lives. We will give an account to him. Of ourselves. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. And that's why he says there. It's not a contradiction of verse 2. Each one shall bear his own load. You will bear your life before God. You will not bear another person's life. They will not bear your life. You will bear your life before God. Ready yourself. Ready yourself to fulfill Christ's law of love to one another. Not because someone deserves or doesn't deserve it, but because you have been given that responsibility from Christ. That's the challenge for us. Fulfill the law of Christ. And that might mean loving someone who is very hard to love shouldn't say might, but I'm trying to soften it a bit, aren't I? That means loving people. Not loving their sin. Not loving the way that they have gone. Not loving because they deserve it. But loving because that responsibility has been set upon me by the Lord who has so loved me. He lived out that principled truth. The law of Christ, that's why... It's called the law of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. Paul's point here is, if you claim to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, then this law of Christ should be seen in you. And that's the challenge for you, is it? Do I love one another as Christ has loved me? Now, it goes without saying, but it... As we say that, it means I have to say it. You can't love in this way if you are not in Christ. You have to know the love of Christ within your heart. You have to know and believe Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of sinners, the Savior of you who have sinned against God. Only through his his sacrifice of himself, his bearing of of sin on the cross, only through his death and his resurrection are you able to be pardoned your sins and accepted by God. That's God's love at work, calling you to believe in his Son. Oh, the love of God that will be poured out into your heart. It's it's a wonder. I urge you, if you have not believed in Christ, know him believe on his name cry out to God and he will save you